The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Come in. Uh, is this the right room for an argument? I've told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. I did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. I'm telling you, I did. You did not. Oh, I'm sorry, just one moment. Um, is this a five-minute argument or the full half hour? Oh, just the uh, five minutes. Ah, thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. Look, let's get this thing clear. I quite definitely told you. No, you did not. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. You didn't. Did. Well, look, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. It is. It is not. Look, you just contradicted me. I did not. Oh, you did. No, no, no. You did just then. Nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. No, you came here for an argument. Well, an argument isn't just contradiction. Can be? No, it can't. An argument is a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's not just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. Yes, but that's not just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Argument is an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of any statement the other person makes. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. Now, look. Good morning. What? That's it. Good morning. I was just getting interested. Sorry, five minutes is up. That was never five minutes. I'm afraid it was. It wasn't. I'm sorry, but I'm not allowed to argue anymore. What? If you want me to go on arguing, you'll have to pay for another five minutes. Yes, but that was never five minutes just now. Oh, come on. <laughs> Look, this is ridiculous. I'm sorry, but I'm not allowed to argue unless you've paid. Oh, all right. Thank you. Well? Well, what? That wasn't really five minutes just now. I told you, I'm not allowed to argue unless you've paid. I just paid. No, you didn't. I did. No, you didn't. Uh, look, I don't want to argue about well, that. Well, you didn't pay. Aha. Uh -huh. If I didn't pay, why are you arguing? I've got you. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. If you're arguing, I must have paid. Not necessarily. I could be arguing in my spare time. Oh, I've had enough of this. No, you haven't. Oh, shut up. Morning, London. It's Thursday, September 27, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm Robert Vaughn. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Now till noon. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Right wing? No, we're not. Just right? Yes, we are. On CHRW 94.9 FM. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to join us in the four differing topics that we'll be talking about today, which include uh, an advocacy of having zero scores in sports. Is that right? No, it's Robert? not. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about love nothing, right? Yes. And then I'm, I want to talk about the, uh, are you selfish if you are childish, chi childless by choice? As one person in the National Post argued, I'm going to comment on that. And I also want to talk about how we're seeing a lot of debates about nothing in the papers lately, especially the massive religious debates that are going on, both uh, domestically and internationally. But I understand, Robert, first you want to start off with... Well, how we started, Aristotle's logical fallacies of That's argument. Right. Is that That's correct? Right. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I want to say, no, it's not. Okay, yeah. Contradiction. Yeah. Yes, fallacies of argument. And that little skit we heard from was, of course, Monty Python with mm -hmm. Michael Palin and John Cleese. 
and um, it is filled with logical fallacies, and I wanted to go through it and also talk about some other common fallacies. I swear John Cleese is laughing at the end of that. <laughs> I hear him chuckling. I'm sure I do. I got that one off the album, actually. Yeah. There's more. <laughs> there are other ones with uh, a laugh track to them done in front of the audience yes. on their show, but they laugh so hard it was hard to hear the actual performers. <laughs> But according to Aristotle, and he, he is, of course, the father of logic or logos in the art of rhetoric, a speaker or writer has three ways to persuade his audience. And this is really germane to what we do here, Bob. We're, mm-hmm. we're trying to persuade an audience. Uh, first of all is ethos, appeal to the speaker's character. Uh, pathos, appeal to emotion. Or logos, appeal to logic. And Aristotle believed that out of the three means of persuasion. Of course, it's logos that is superior and that I, ideally all arguments should be won or lost on reason alone. And to that effect, he established 13 common fallacies in argument. 13. 13 common fallacies. Now that, of course, has grown to many tens of different fallacies and ways of looking at an argument. And um, what I'm going to do right now is go through that little argument sketch by Monty Python and point out what I think are some of the fallacies that are so blatant in it. And the first, of course, is the contrarian argument. Simply adopting a contrary position for the sake of it is not an argument. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's something you'd hear a five-year-old's going back and forth. <laughs> yes, it is. Time and, Time's infinity. <laughs> Um, so, the contrarian argument is a fallacy. You just cannot ca- adopt a contrary position without establishing the reason for your position. That's can, logic. Can, can, I, can I be contrarian here for a second? Sure. Is the word argument the right word? Because I think you could have a contrarian <laughs> argument, but not a debate. Isn't an argument just two people disagreeing for whatever reason they disagree? Well, no, actually, there's a definition of argument, and Michael Palin actually gave the correct definition of argument in that skit where he said it is a series of... uh, a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition. Okay. That isn't a valid... Uh, definition of argument is not the dictionary definition, but it's it's close enough, and so you just can't say no, it isn't. Well, that wouldn't validate your argument. Exactly, <laughs> that's true. It's not a connected series of statements <laughs> intended to establish a proposition. You're just stating your proposition. Yeah, the state no, it, it does establish your position, but that's all. It gives your position. It yeah. doesn't validate it. Which is probably yeah. why political campaigns are so frustrating. Because that's, oh. that's all you get in a political campaign. Exactly, is, yes. Yes, you are. No, you aren't. Yes, you are. No, you aren't. <laughs> and, of course, now there's an error of fact. Now, to the observer, like you and I listening to that uh, exchange, Cleese is obviously wrong when he says that he told him once that it was the right room for an argument and that he didn't pay. He's obviously either lying or has no short-term memory. But there's the error of fact. So if you have an argument, make sure your facts are correct. Otherwise, you're going to lose the argument. Argument by repetition, or argument ad nauseum. So when both sides repeat their positions over and over again in the hopes that if you say something often enough, someone will believe it. Uh, For example, Canada has the best health care system in the world. (laughs) Hear it back and forth over and over again. And of course, it is not necessarily true. And repeating it over and over again on the CBC or our politicians is not going to make it true. Argument by dismissal. Both men in the skit reject the other's position without saying why. For quite a long time, until Palin finally uh, tries another tactic in defining his terms of what an argument really is. But before that, it was just simply argument by dismissal. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. 
Argument ad hominem. Now, this is probably the most common fallacy in any argument that you're going to find uh, anywhere today, in the opinion pages of the newspapers, in any speech that you'll hear from uh, the members of parliament. Argument ad hominem means attack the man. When uh, you call your opponent's claim nonsense, as Cleese did to Palin, um, what he did, in effect, was calling his opponent uh, an idiot. Okay, your your opinion is nonsense. That's that's just being pejorative. It's it's attacking the uh, the speaker rather than the argument and his reasons. So, argument ad hominem. Argument by prestigious jargon. When Palin defines what it means, jargon. I haven't heard that yeah. one. Uh, this is this. I'm using a little poetic license by actually attributing this to Palin in this in this skit because prestigious jargon is is using big words so as to st- make your uh, opponent confused and make him stumble and and um, not grab for a dictionary to find out what you're saying. So mm-hmm. when he says an argument is this uh, connect a series of statements, uh, you know, intended to establish a proposition, right? He's trying to use jargon right for his purpose well it, it if you can He's use a big word it, it sounds you sound more intelligent you sound regardless more intelligent. of and what, re- what nonsense you're saying <laughs> and no no as a matter of fact he could be absolutely correct True. he could be absolutely correct the thing is but if though, it's a fallacy no the fallacy is trying to um destroy your opponent's position by throwing words at him that he may not understand right it not like oh I, said, I see it's not not all fallacies okay, are necessarily I, incorrect gotcha Right. For example, um, if you have an ad hominem attack, it could be, could be quite true that your person, that the person you're arguing with, is an idiot. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not germane to the argument, but it's it's a factually yeah, correct. Yeah. His being an idiot doesn't make your argument right. That's correct. That's the point. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of these fallacies actually have kernels of truth in them. And then there's the argument by pig-headedness, or what's called <laughs> doggedness. Cleese refuses to accept his defeat, even when faced with evidence to the contrary. That's almost faith, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you'll get to that in the third yeah. quarter when you talk about religion. That's why I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah. Now, then we get into a little bit more uh, complexity here, and excuse the jargon, but here we have a converse fallacy or a, a converse fallacy of accident or hasty generalization, also called reverse accident or destroying the exception or addicto secundum quid addictum simplicter. Yeah, Got right. that, Bob? Yeah. Okay, I'm right, writing right, it down. down. Okay. <laughs> well, basically what it means is if... if when it, when Destroy the exception. Yes. When when Palin says to Cleese, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary... No, actually, when Cleese says to Palin, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. In other words, since taking up a contrary position is an element of arguing, the fact that I have taken a contrary position proves that I'm arguing. When in fact... Taking up a contrary position is not the only requirement for having an argument. As Palin illustrated earlier on, it's a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not simply taking up a contrary position. So, in other words, Cleese has drawn a hasty conclusion by excluding other requirements for an argument. I bet you didn't think I would get into that level of detail no, over no, Monty I'm, Python's skit. But anyway, here's another one. Here's another one. (laughs) Affirmation of the consequent, it's called. If you're arguing, I must have paid, says Palin. In other words, if B is a requirement for A, then if B, then A. But the fallacy is in accepting that B is the only requirement for A. This is what's called inductive fallacy, where the premises don't provide enough support for a conclusion. 
a fallacy which John Cleese easily points out by saying, not necessarily, I could be arguing my spare time. I thought, I thought that was a cop-out because <laughs> the other guy got him on that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't get he didn't, him on eh? that, actually. No, because he excluded any other elements which may go into making up what an argument is. Sure. He just picked one. He excluded the rest. And then, lastly, uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc. And that's Latin for after this, therefore, because of this. A fallacy that occurs when someone reaches a conclusion of causation because an event followed another event. For example, and I got this off the web. As a matter of fact, I got most of these off of uh, parts of the web, which unfortunately I just haven't attributed to. But it's not, it's not all mine. <laughs> it started to rain after my ice cream cone fell on the ground. Therefore, my ice cream cone falling on the ground caused it to rain. You could say that of Palin. Cleese starts to argue after Palin pays. Therefore, paying caused Cleese to argue when that may not have been the case because, as Cleese says, I could have been arguing in my spare time. So that's post hoc ergo propter hoc, what not doesn't necessarily follow. However, didn't Cleese contradict himself when he said I could be arguing in my spare time after having told his opponent that he only argues if he gets the money? That's where I saw ah, the yes, downfall. Ah, yes, you're absolutely you right. And that's, that's why an I thought, error in fact, too. Right. Yeah. So I think the other guy won the argument. So yeah. there. <laughs> Just a couple of other little funny things to get away from that uh, Monty Python thing. There's a lot of uh, funny examples of fallacies in argument. For example, equivocation. Uh, that's a, a definition of a word having two diff- a word having two different meanings. For example, all trees have bark. All dogs bark. Therefore, all dogs are trees. Mm-hmm. You know, you've used the same word in or two different ways. Or all dogs bark up the wrong tree. Or <laughs> amphiboly. Amphiboly is what I would... Uh, what I, Actually, it was an article about the National Post there about a week ago about the Oxford comma, it's called, when you're listing things. Just before and, do you put the comma? I always do, to avoid any um, amphiboly. For I do, example, too. I know last exactly night, what you mean. Last night, I shot a burglar in my pajamas. How I got in my pajamas, I'll never know. <laughs> but you see what I'm good. saying? It is, it is a way of reading the sentence incorrectly. And uh, here's, a, here's another one just to end off the segment. Uh, affirming the consequent again. All cats die. Socrates died. Therefore, Socrates was a cat. If you go around and you read all of the opinion pieces in the paper today, I can bet you 100% in every single opinion article and in a lot of the news articles, quote-unquote, you will find errors of um, logic and uh, logical fallacies that uh, try to persuade people one way or another based on appeals to emotion, ad hominem attacks, appeals to faith, uh, you know, vehemency. uh, There's a list of them. And I'm talking maybe 30, 40, 50 different ways that people go about trying to express their argument without actually using reason. Without doing the work. Without doing the work. Well said, Bob. And coming up next, uh, we're going to be continuing our argument theme, I guess you could say. We're seeing a lot of arguments. Look at this Look at this bag of articles I've got here, just from mm. the Post and the, and the Free Press, all about religious arguments, uh, internationally and even locally. I want to get more to the root of what these arguments are all about. Are they really about... Nothing or are they about something? We'll take a look at that when we return after this. With me now is Norman Sinjin Polvolter, who for the last few years has been contradicting people. Sinjin Polvolter, why do you contradict people? I don't! But you, you told me that you did. I most certainly did not! 
Oh, I see. I'll start again. No, you won't. I understand you don't contradict people. Yes, I do. And when didn't you start contradicting them? I did, in 1952. 1952? 1947. 23 years ago. No! <laughs> so what's happening with the TV show? You come up with anything? No, nothing. Why don't they have salsa on the table? What do you need salsa for? Salsa is now the number one condiment in America. Do you know why? Because people like to say salsa. <laughs> Excuse me, do you have any salsa? We need more salsa. Where's the salsa? No salsa. <laughs> you know, it must be impossible for a Spanish person to order salsa and not get salsa. <laughs> I wanted salsa, not salsa. <laughs> Don't you know the difference between salsa and salsa? You have the salsa after the salsa. <laughs> This should be the show. This is the show. What? Yes. Just talk. Yeah. I'm really serious. I think that's a good idea. Just talking? Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. No story? No, forget the story. You gotta have a story. Who says you gotta have a story? Remember when we were waiting for, for that table in that Chinese restaurant that time? That could be a TV show. And who's on the show? Who are the characters? I could be a character. You? Yeah, you base a character on me. So on the show, there's a character named George Costanza? Yeah. What, there's something wrong with that? I'm a character. People are always saying to me, you know, you're quite a character. And who else is on the show? Elaine could be a character. Kramer. Now, he's a character. <laughs> so everybody I know is a character on the show. Right. And it's about nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so you're saying I go into NBC and tell them I got this idea for a show about nothing. We go into NBC. We? Since when are you a writer? What writer? We're talking about a sitcom. You want to go with me to NBC? Yeah, I think we really got something here. What do we got? An idea. What idea? An idea for the show. I still don't know what the idea is. It's about nothing. Right. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. <laughs> so we go into NBC, we tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. <laughs> I think you may have something here. <laughs> Who says you have to have a story, asks George Costanz of Jerry Seinfeld. We really got something here, and what they've got, of course, is nothing. <laughs> Funny as it sounds, people spend more time arguing about nothing than they can possibly imagine when it really comes down to it. The newspapers have been filling their pages with the great debate about nothing, and as with any debate in the context of nothing, it has many characters and really only one or few plots. I'm speaking, of course, about a lot, a lot of the religious wars, both locally and internationally in the pages of the newspapers these days. But, but the nothing they're arguing about is always really something, as I've repeated more than once on this program. There ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? So that's exactly what Jerry Seinfeld was saying in that, in that skit right there. Hey, hey Robert? So, as an outsider to the metaphysical debates engulfing religious differences of opinion, I find all the debates over, you know, the existence of God or creationism versus evolution 
kind of um, a non-issue. They're debating about nothing when the something really is at the root to avoid something, some form of responsibility or getting something for nothing. That's the nothing that everybody's into. And, you know, even George Costanza chooses nothing to do a show about nothing because he's a lazy character. <laughs> he doesn't want to write a script. Ooh, writers is writer. What are you talking about? We're talking about a sitcom, <laughs> right? And so that's how he avoids that responsibility. We saw how that show ended. I don't know if you saw the episode or not. But religious arguments are about nothing if they're based on blind faith. But moral arguments are definitely about something and something important. And interestingly enough, those moral arguments are most often wrapped in religious garb. And therein lies a big issue. Too often religion is confused with morality. And so when some people hear someone dismiss religion, they immediately conclude that person's immoral or incapable of comprehending the greater life issues, such as one's own mortality or immortality, and of the individual's relationships to other individuals and to, quote-unquote, God, which might be replaced by nature or the environment among non-deists, or even among the more primitive religions in tribal collectives. And you and I were talking about what it was about uh, believers that they had against, quote, non-believers as such, right? And I think we talked a little bit about, remember our discussion on religious determinism? You said, you, you pointed out how God has a plan, right, Robert? That's what you... Oh, yeah, in a conversation we just had the other day. Yeah. Right? yeah. And... Uh, it had to do with abortion. We were talking about well, that abortion. Well, that was the issue, yes, the, 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 our, our particular issue at the time, and why people, what what their stand on it would be. And, but I was wondering, you know, if you, if you actually went by that and you said, if God has a plan and we just obey it, are we being moral? I would almost say we're almost the opposite, because the opposite is human choice, which you said a lot of religionists think interferes with God's plan. Well, you right? and I were brought up Catholic, and as you know, I mean, Catholic faith um, places a great emphasis on choice. And um, you cannot be moral if you do not have choice, according to the Catholic belief. Right. And uh, that was one of the positive elements of yes. that religion that we both spoke to. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd already been thinking about all of this before running into September 21st London Free Press Commentary by Tom Harper, which is this one here if you want to take a look at it. Uh, religion by rote leads to hypocrisy. Now, having surveyed his readers, in particular why the unbelievers among them were unbelievers, he writes that the hypocrisy of believers is the major reason that they are unbelievers. And I'm thinking, well, if the only reason you're an unbeliever is because of the hypocrisy of the believers, then you're really just a believer, but maybe ashamed to admit it due to the company you have to keep. You know, perhaps that's why Harper called them wistful unbelievers because they would like to believe, but they don't like the company they have to keep. I don't know if that was his thinking or not, but one can, one can wonder if it can be argued that it is hypocrisy that leads to religion by rote instead of the other way around. Again, uh, Is hypocrisy the result or the cause? Just wondering. The fallacy here, of course, is uh, generalization. First of all, you cannot say um, blanket statements about atheists or believers mm -hmm. and, and hold that true for everybody. Well, this will interest you. Hypocrisy aside, Harper's commentary does offer something of value, no doubt in part to his reference to a real philosopher, coincidentally, with respect to someone you just talked about. 
what's his name here now? Aristotle? Oh, Aristotle. <laughs> Under whose broad camp Robert and I would fall, as opposed to being Plat- Platonist, Platonist? How, you, how would you say that? But we're Aristotelians, basically. We yes. fall into that camp. And now this is Harper writing. In his famous treatise on ethics dedicated to his son, Aristotle says that one swallow does not make a summer. He says this to illustrate his point that one isolated good action does not make a good person. Even the worst criminals can be kind to their friends or their cat. Adolf Hitler adored his dog. Instead, Aristotle teaches that a truly ethical person is someone who consciously has chosen a particular way of acting as a habitual, deeply rooted part of their character. They constantly seek after truth and to do what is compassionate, just and right in every situation. Hmm. Think we named our show the right thing? Just right. Yes. Hmm. They take time regularly to reflect upon their words and actions so as to learn from their mistakes. Unfortunately, through laziness and carelessness, more than through malice, and here I think of George Costanza again, the vast majority of people in the Western world today have put their inner lives on cruise control, giving little thought to the full moral impact of daily choices. Instead, they act out of instinct or even at times like persons sleepwalking. Over the years, I have encountered many devout Christians, for example, who have used their faith as a kind of armor to protect themselves from self-knowledge. They can tell you that they were born again or saved. They say they avail themselves of the Lord and His help at every turn. But they never manage to see the harm they have often done to others through insensitivity or judgmentalism. Often they treat their children and others in anything but a loving manner. Yet they are blind to this and much more. Rather than do the hard work of gaining insight into their own behavior and words, they're full of righteous indignation at the perceived faults of this or that group of unbelievers, pagans, perverts, or sinners in general. We all need reminding. We don't have to resort to the wisdom of Aristotle or the Delphic Oracle to wake up and smell the proverbial coffee. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that one's faith is no substitute for constantly seeking out truth in the inner part. Self-knowledge, self-criticism, and the examined life are just as much a part of the Judeo-Christian spiritual and intellectual path as they were for classical philosophy, end quote. What's your first reaction to that? Do you have positive. One? It is positive. But I have to think, you know, when I looked at it again, I said, well, wait a minute. Basically, he's saying, well, we don't have to turn to Aristotle. We'd go to the Bible instead. And... I'm starting to wonder, you know, when, when he refers to unbelievers, unbelievers in what? In the Bible, in Jesus Christ, in God, in creationism, in an afterlife, in the supernatural, in faith. Which in, of the hundreds of gods we've invented? In reason, yeah. What if you believe in two completely, pardon, pardon the pun again, contradictory things, right? Um, if knowledge is a value, as one might conclude from reading this commentary, which is why I felt, you know, positively disposed to it, then why insist on belief? That's why I think he's tossing out Aristotle. Yeah, his conclusions are wrong here. Yeah, along with the Delphic Oracle in favor of the Bible. In a supposed search for knowledge, we're expected to merely believe. Now, which of Aristotle's fallacies was that? Was that the contradiction, or was that another one? I don't know. There's a lot of them in this argument. Like I said uh, earlier on, generalization and overgeneralization is one of them. Well, here's an interesting... A hasty jump to conclusion is another. 
Actually, it was Aristotle's influence on religion that transformed many uncivilized and barbarous religious codes into civilized ones. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a major fact. Interesting. This is from the Playboy interview, 1964 August, with Ayn Rand, in which Alvin Toffler, the interviewer, asks her, Has no religion, in your estimation, ever offered anything of constructive value to human life? Great answer by Rand here, very clear. And she says, Qua religion, no. In the sense of blind belief, belief unsupported by or contrary to the facts of reality and the conclusions of reason. Faith as such is extremely detrimental to human life. It is the negation of reason. Now, here's the big but. But you must remember that religion is an early form of philosophy, that the first attempts to explain the universe, to give a coherent frame of reference to man's life, and a code of moral values were made by religion before men graduated or developed enough to have philosophy. And as philosophies, some religions have very valuable moral points. They may have a good influence or proper principles to inculcate, but in a very contradictory context, on a very, how should I say it, dangerous or malevolent base on the ground of faith. Good answer, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think she's saying that faith is dangerous because it's undisciplined by reality and reason. Blind faith is pure women. Notice that there's that blind put in front of it as well. Wishing, make-believe, and when acted upon can lead to destructive and deadly consequences. And that's why, you know, we were talking, you were raised as um, Catholics, and we were contemplating, you know, maybe Catholicism is among the world's most mature of the organized religions because of what you were just saying. And by mature, you not necessarily mean old, which, of course, it is. No. But... um Developed towards reality and reason, yes. strangely enough. And I'd have to agree. Yeah, and Judaism, the root of that might also be in there because mm-hmm. you know they live for this world more than for the next. And From my understanding, difficult. Jews yeah. do not believe in an afterlife. Yes. So, and, and of course, in the influences within the church, for, um, Thomas Aquinas was the Aristotelian in the church that, that brought it to a lot of its beliefs. So you have that whole background. So... Uh, you know, when so-called religion becomes a philosophy, only then can, be, can it really be a value to humanity, as a moral guide only, but never as a means of acquiring metaphysical knowledge, which is what they're always getting themselves trapped into. You know, the Big Bang, origin of the universe, Evolution. things like that, mm. right? Okay, that's all I have to say on that. Now, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it's often said, but not everyone agrees. I'm going to be talking about having children when we come back after this break. And the question is, is not wanting to have kids the ultimate in selfishness? That's the proposition we'll be talking about when we return after our upcoming break. For some testimony and evidence on this issue, we offer the next voice that you'll be hearing, that of comedian Doug Stanhope, whose thoughts on the subject might serve as Exhibit A in our debate. We'll be back after this. My brother just had another baby, and... uh I had to fly back to Rhode Island to look at the thing because I'm his uncle. It's a protocol, and I have to. And I'm glad he's that excited about the baby. I don't think babies are cute or funny. I hate seeing pictures of them. I don't have anything nice to say. Babies are like poems. They're, they're beautiful to their creator. But to other people, they're silly and they're irritating. Keep the picture in your wallet. You ever get stuck reading somebody's poems? You stuck reading someone's poems and that, that girl brings your ratty-ass notebook out from underneath the bed? I'm going to let you read my poems. <laughs> I never let 
anybody read my poems, I'm so embarrassed, but I'm gonna let you read all of my poems. Oh, thanks. Wow, you must have got dumped by a lot of guys. Look at that. That's the way baby pictures are to me. And every time you say you hate children, people always say the same thing. It would be different if it was your own child. Yeah, well, what if it wasn't? I believed all of you people who told me that and on your good word I squeeze out a rat of my own and I end up hating my own flesh and blood just as much as I hate that screaming piece of in the airplane next to me or the filthy kid in the Denny's booth behind you who leans over and he plays in your hair and he drools chewed up pancakes down the back of your neck and his parents think it's hilarious and you're hungover and you want to you know not hurt the kid or anything, but maybe squeeze a lemon in his eye. Something that's not traceable back to me. If it was my own kid, I could do that to him all day long. I don't know that that would ever get boring to me. Do we need more children? No. If you need a baby that bad, go, go down to the pound and get one. There's, there's millions of, not even a baby, go get an old man. There's unwanted people of all ages pre-made and waiting for you. Did you read the headline this morning? Eight million people, the population in New York City is now over eight million for the first. Two million people could die tonight and traffic would still suck in the morning. Stop spitting out the children. We don't need to get... I, 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 I'm not trying to sound like that much of a prick, but I, I resent your children. Why do I? Why is it you have kids, the natural resources of this world get pissed away like draft beer at a frat party, and you have kids and you benefit? It's at my expense. Why do I have to pay for your schools? Why does that come out of my tax money? I don't. I didn't do anything. I. I... about Jake. I'm sure that Dr. Bashir is looking after him. It seems just yesterday he was five years old. Clinging to me because he just scraped his knee. And I was the only one in the world who could make it better. I remember sometimes getting up in the middle of the night and slipping into his room just to make sure he was all right. And I'd sit there and watch him sleep. And I think to myself, that no matter what, I wasn't going to let anything bad happen to this child. Now he's a sector away in a war zone and there's nothing I can do to protect him. Try not to worry, Captain. It won't do you or Jake any good. <laughs> Can't help it. It comes with the territory. But Jake is 18 years old. Does your father still worry about you? Oh, all the time. Ah. Oh. I never realized how stressful it is to be a parent. I have to say, I don't think it's for me. That's your choice. But you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. Is that how you feel about having kids, Robert? We both actually, had kids. yeah, we were both parents. And when I had uh, my children, I can tell you that it is a completely different experience than you would think before going into it. 
um, there aren't, are, aren't so many things. Right? There are so many psychological and physiological changes that even us as males have being parents. Mm-hmm. So you know, w- this article appeared in the National Post a few days back, and, and and the question that was posed was: Is it selfish to not want children? And I think the irony of the question is that the answer is yes. And if you were also to ask, is it selfish to want children? The answer to that question would also be yes, <laughs> right? And so I didn't know what point was trying to be made when someone was trying to argue just one half of that equation. And that's what I'm trying to get at when I get to the end of this analysis here. I'm speaking, of course, of Joe O'Connor's, quote, trend of couples not having children just plain selfish that showed up in the National Post on September 19. And he writes, Canada's latest batch of 2011 census numbers was released Wednesday and revealed that 44.5% of couples are without children compared to 39.2% with children. Now, the the stats are partly explained by the nature of the couples being counted. Baby boomers who are parents but no longer have children living at home are lumped in the without children category. So you and I are in that category as far as the stats are concerned, (laughs) Robert, even though I don't know how you can argue that. But there is also this, he writes, one in five women will not have a child in their lifetime, whether by choice or circumstance. Having children used to be the point of being a pair, a biological impulse to go forth and multiply. No more gone are diaper changes and ballet classes replaced by hot yoga and shopping trips to New York City. Monica Zenyuk belongs to Babes Without Babes, an Edmonton social club for child-free women. Can you believe it? Great name. (laughs) She and her husband have been married for 18 years. The benefits of not having children are in the driveway, in our closet, and stamped on our passports, Ms. Zenyuk told Post Media reporter Misty Harris. Kids are expensive, and the marriage mortality rate is huge without the added pressure of financing a child through its life. What she forgot to mention was how kids can break our hearts. Indeed, there are more finite calculations involved. Career demands, timing, not having a partner, or not having the right partner. Flaky fears about overburdening our already overburdened planet, personal choice, and a bunch of other hooey that serve to hide the fact that happy couples that choose not to have kids are, at root, well, let's see, selfish. (laughs) That's his word. What will it mean for us as a nation? What could be lost, and what will become of those trim, fit, and fat-free yogurt-loving folks when decrepitude invariably creeps in, when they age, as we all inevitably do, and the children they chose not to have aren't around to look after them? End quote. Interesting. Well, my pension would be bigger to begin with. (laughs) I have a lot more money. You know, what's fascinating about this view, you know, it is that it is unequivocal about condemning simple self-interest, um, not greed or any form of selfishness that involves another. In fact, his own reasoning, I think, is that secondary argument from greed. You know, having kids so they'll look after you? Are you listening to yourself when you say that? Yeah, is, so is, kids are a means you know, to your end. That's exactly right. And, and uh, again, you know, it comes down to that something for nothing um, theme that keeps, keeps arising. A lot of people caught on to this, too, who, who wrote to the National Post just to, to grab a few. One person uh, wrote, you know, it's selfish to have children you don't want just so they can look after you. <laughs> Pretty clear. Not only you know? that, it's rather, I don't know, evil. <laughs> 
to well, think what, of it. Well, what's interesting too is how some people say they have no problem with uh, as as people who aren't who don't have kids, they have no problem with people who do have kids being offered tax deductions. Um, and uh, because he thinks he's going to gain by that too, so he, either that could be a selfless, an act of selflessness on the one side and sacrifice, or selfishness if he's doing it for the same reason as the other parent, but using th- that other parent's kids as his means to his, his uh, retirement. I guess if you want to look at it that way. So my little tax deduction. Yes, your little <laughs> tax deduction. That's cute. Um, you know, Ayn Rand did not have children, and she was asked in the same interview that I just uh, referred to from Playboy magazine, 1964, she, uh, by Alvin Toffler, according to your philosophy, work and achievement are the highest goals in life. Do you regard as immoral those who find greater fulfillment in the warmth of friendship and family ties? This is a pretty interesting answer. Rand says, if they place such things as friendship and family above their productive work, yes, they are immoral. Friendship, family life, and human relationships are not primary in a man's life. And a man who places others first above his own creative work is an emotional parasite. Whereas if he places his work first, there is no conflict between his work and his enjoyment of human relationships. Then Toffler asks her, in your opinion, is a woman immoral who chooses to devote herself to home and family instead of career? Rand says, no, not immoral. I would say she's impractical because a home cannot be a full-time occupation except when her children are young. However, if she wants a family and wants to make that her career, at least for a while, that would be proper. If she approaches it as a career, so parenting should be a career, that's her point, right? Mm -hmm. That is, if she studies a subject, if she defines the rules and principles by which she wants to bring up her children, if she approaches her task in an intellectual manner, it is a very responsible task and a very important one, but only when treated as a science, not as a mere emotional indulgence. Hmm. Which would be selfishness again, isn't it? It's funny how one person wrote here, every time he hears anybody talking about uh, anybody who wants kids, they always go, I want, I want, you know, it comes, comes out of that, that kind of a, a background. So, then he asks her, he says, um, you also hold that your own happiness is the highest end and self-sacrifice is immoral. Does this also apply to love as, as well as to work? And she says, to love more than anything else. When you are in love, it means that the person you love is of great personal selfish importance to you in your life. If you are selfless, it would have to mean you derive no pleasure or happiness from the company and existence of the person you love, and that you're motivated only by self-sacrificial pity of that person's need of you. No one would be flattered by a concept of that kind. Love is not self-sacrifice but the most profound assertion of your own needs and values. It is for your own personal happiness that you need the person you love. And that is the greatest compliment, the greatest tribute that you can pay to that person. So really, you know, loving is, I guess, the ultimate act of selfishness. A selfless love would be a contradiction in terms, wouldn't it? Coming back to that, it would be valueless, especially to the person claiming to be selfless, which explains to me why the left in general always brags about being selfless, as if it were some kind of virtue when in fact it's both a vice and, and can be destructive to human morality. And in all my years of having heard that word selfless thrown at me by various people I've debated on the left, every one of them was, by my standards of evaluation, greedy, not merely selfish. They all wanted something for nothing and saw their false claims of selfishness as the means to that end. 
so too it is with the proposition that one should have children selflessly so that in old age they will not be faced with the consequence of, quote, the children they chose not to have who aren't around to look after them. It's a pure pretense of the selfless that they are so. And so, truth be told, their arguments are the arguments of greed and nothing to do with selfishness. Which is why they keep continually attacking and morally condemning the so-called selfish. That's it. What do you think? I like it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want me to say? I don't know. But uh, speaking of love, we're going to be talking about love nothing. (laughs) The score in the next... Uh, I don't even know what the premise of this is. You want to introduce it, or shall we just jump in? Um, well, it's about the, an article in the paper the other day about non-competition. Ah, well, we'll have to get to that on the other side of this. Al, would you get the door for once in your life? Who the hell spent $60 on granular facial scrub? I'll get it. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hi, Al. What do you want? I miss Marcy. Oh, look at that, Al. It's only been a few minutes and he misses her. Why don't you just kill me? <laughs> Close the door, the heat's getting out. Well, if you want to cut down on your heating bills, do what we did. Install extra insulation. Not only is it a monthly savings, but we got a nifty little rebate from the government for energy conservation. Believe me, it had a lot to do with that big tax refund we just got. The only thing is, we don't know what to do with the money. Why don't you have a couple of kids, they'll suck it up like a hoover. (laughs) It's a vacuum cleaner, Peg, in case you want to do something different with your afternoons. Challenged your friend the game of Parisi Squares by some of the maintenance personnel. Want to join us on the Starbase? You've already got all the players you need. Oh, we can switch off. Now, you know, if you do that in Parisi Squares, you'll lose the rhythm of the game. I can't talk you into coming with us. No, you win, all right? The pride of the Enterprise goes with you. Rest assured, Commander, we will be victorious at whatever the cost. Worf, it's just a game, a friendly little competition. You work up a sweat, you have a few laughs, and you make new friends. If winning is not important, then, Commander, why keep score? Why keep score indeed? This is a story that caught my eye in the National Post from last Saturday. Redefining competition, scoreless sports movement emphasizes player development over standings. It was by Catherine Blaise Carlson. In 2005, a federally funded, note that, although it's a non sequitur, (laughs) a federally funded and self-described, quote, movement, a movement, by the way, of 18 people, if you oh, look, yeah. go onto their website and find out who they are, it's just 18 people, called Sport for Life, issued guidelines for what they call long-term athletic development, or athlete development. One of the guidelines is a redefinition of the concept of competition, from meaning to strive for an objective or to be in a state of rivalry, to meaning not winning or losing, but trying your best to improve as a team. So they're re- trying to redefine the, that term trying to change the dictionary definition of that concept. This redefinition begs the question, if you don't keep score, how do you know that you've tried your best? If you don't keep score, how do you know that your team has improved? This entire issue 
apparently revolves around the old nature-nurture argument. Is it part of our nature as humans to be competitive, or is it something we learn? On the nature side is psychologist Alan Fox, who says that, quote, the idea of not keeping score is quite possibly one of the stupidest things of all time. An ad hominem statement, again, against his opponents, (laughs) one of whom would be Alfie Cohn, author of No Contest, The Case Against Competition, who, not to be outdone in the argumentum ad hominem battle, called Alan Fox's views absurd. Now, apparently, this nature-nurture argument is not going to get as far in understanding why anyone would want to redefine the term competition or suggest that children play without keeping score. It would be easy to suggest that the opponents of keeping score probably grew up as losers themselves, and then now it's time for a bit of payback. It would be equally easy, easy to suggest that they grew up as bullies and are now continuing that urge to dominate the arena by suggesting we conform to their set of guidelines. I think the real reason is a bit more sinister. There's an egalitarian nature to not keeping score, making sure that there are no winners or losers, just participants, where everyone gets a meaningless medal at the end of the game for participating or simply showing up. But even calling their motives egalitarian is rather obvious and may even be something that they might be proud of. After all, they are trying to remove the stigma one gets from losing and likewise the feeling of satisfaction one gets from winning. Everyone feels the same. No emotional highs, no emotional lows. We all become a collective of equals. Equal in ability, equal in results, and equal in our lack of passion for living. A true Harrison Bergeron paradise of homogeneity. What is not so obvious, I think, is the satisfaction these people derive from sucking the pleasure out of life. We've seen their kind before. The overregulators who would have our children dress up with knee pads, shoulder pads, safety shoes, and helmets just to take a walk to the corner store. They're the kind of person who delights in bringing us all down to the same level so that even if we we aren't all losers, we aren't winners either. And by redefining competition, they've removed goals and objectives to strive for in rivalry. Remember, that's the real definition of competition. Goals and objectives and striving for them in rivalry. In removing these goals and objectives, i.e. to win... They've removed the passion and joy one gets at least from trying to win. With no goals and no winners, there's nothing to strive for. Why bother to show up to a game? If you show up, why bother to kick the ball into your opponent's net? Why not just kick it into your own net? doesn't matter. If nobody's keeping score, there's no winners or losers. Yeah, you still scored. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You're good. You're yeah. really good. <laughs> if keeping score doesn't matter in sport, why does it matter in grades? As one letter writer, uh, Roy Haina from Oshawa, to the National Post wrote, perhaps Edmonton ex-teacher Lyndon Dorval, a.k.a. Captain Zero, should be immediately reinstated with full back pay, since a grade of zero or 100 doesn't matter either. He went on to write, numbers matter. Scores and timelines are what motivate people to get things done. There's that goal and objective again. And timeline. time. Those numbers are not going to stop. The clock will not stop for you just because you don't want to keep score. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but preventing people from getting things done. 
seems to be, ironically, the goal mm-hmm. of this government-funded so-called non-competition movement. And I have to laugh that they call themselves a movement. It's like you and I and a bunch of our friends that get together in a room and call ourselves a movement, you know, as if well, the whole, whole of society it's, uh, is that's moving how you, in that That's direction. how they all start, though, let's face it. Well, that's true. A handful of people are, are what all these uh, groups are about. Their new definition of competition makes no room for goals, objectives, or accomplishments. If we were to tacitly accept their passionless philosophy, frankly, there'd be no reason to get out of bed. You know, I'm reminded again, even of Tom Harper's article before, The Evasion of Self-Knowledge, which he was speaking of in religious terms. That's what's happening here. There's this evasion of self-knowledge by avoiding a comparison to other selves mm-hmm. by doing this, right? And objective standards and goals. Well, just like you said, how would you even know if you were good or bad at something if you weren't able to compare your own performance to that of others? Or even to yourself. Exactly. So I'm even thinking even if it's self-improvement, there has to be some kind of scorekeeping. I can't believe that there isn't. In well, if regard. you listen to some of the comments of people who wrote into the paper after this article appeared, mm-hmm. the kids still keep score in their head. Sure they do. Of course you they do. Possibly. And at the end, they said, oh, I won or he lost. But of course, there's no scoreboard anymore. You see, you need that comparison because, well, think about it. That comparison in, in economics, it determines the price of something. In human skills and resources, that comparison determines the objective value of something, which can also translate into price if the skill is being offered on a market to other people. Mm-hmm. So those numbers are all very real. And playing games, quote, just for the fun of it and not keeping score, I think removes the whole purpose of the game. And it can be very, uh, very uh, dangerous to do. You know, just to give you a personal experience in this regard, and this isn't exactly the same the type of game most people would think of, but I'm, I used to play a lot of chess, haven't for quite a while, but um, loved the game more than the competition. And there was a period of time where we'd play with an opponent, and if an opponent made a really dumb move that, that hurt the game, we'd let him take the move back. <laughs> you don't do that in chess, right? And, uh, but I loved the game so much I didn't care. You know, go ahead, take the move back, because I don't want to win. Because you did something so stupid, I didn't get any satisfaction out of it, right? And the, and the other person, and we were always distracted. You're a sore winner, Bob. <laughs> I was a sore winner, yes. But then I found out that by doing that, I became a worse player. And when I played somebody who wasn't into taking moves back, I was just that much more careless before I took my move. Because once you let let go of that piece, it's done, right? Rather, rather, that's rather presumptuous of you. Because I mean, people can make what you think is a stupid move, but they could be sacrificing a piece to gain an advantage uh, elsewhere. Absolutely true, and that was always discussed. It wasn't something we just did. You know, the person would acknowledge it was a stupid move, uh-huh. and often it was done because they they even said, "Oh, I'm never going to do that," and then they go and do it because we got distracted. We were always in a distracted environment, and that's why we did it. So not keeping score, so, also you lose out on the valuable lessons. Yes. Not only of losing, but the valuable lesson of trying to win with grace. If you don't keep score, I think it's a detriment to society. And it's also against the nature of uh, human. Well, I think Ed's hinting in the headsets here. We have to exit with a little bit of grace now, so shall we do so? (laughs) Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Hey, until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And we'll see you right back here. No, you won't. Take care. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Steve and I can't wait until we have kids Giving birth to a child must be one of the most beautiful experiences in God's universe Huh, I wouldn't know I was unconscious for a week (laughs) 